MSW Media. Thanks to Ana Luisa for supporting the MSW Book Club. Ana Luisa makes beautiful, sustainable jewelry at fair prices. For 10% off, go to shop.analuisa.com slash book club and use code book club. And please join me in thanking Credit Karma for supporting the MSW Book Club. Credit Karma, apply with more confidence today. Ready to apply? Head to creditkarma.com slash loan offers to see personalized offers. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, the, our position is. I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I didn't have not have communications with the Russians. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So, it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello, and welcome to the MSW Book Club. I'm your host, A.G., Allison Gill, and this is episode four of the series on the New York Times bestseller, Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution by Ellie Mistal. Today, I'll be covering chapters seven through 10, beginning on page 72 in the hardback edition. Also out today is a new episode of Muller She Wrote, and you can find me doing video hits on the Midas Touch YouTube channel now, so subscribe to that. And I'd like to take a minute to thank our patrons. Patrons of this show get the episodes ad-free, and for no additional cost, you also get the premium ad-free feed for Muller She Wrote and The Daily Beans, which is our daily news show, co-hosted by the amazing Dana Goldberg, which comes out every weekday morning. Patrons make these shows possible. We couldn't do them without you, so thank you. To become a patron, you can go to patreon.com slash MullerSheWrote or head to Supercast and search for MullerSheWrote. All right, let's dive into Chapter 7. This is a quick chapter called Stopping Police Brutality. And Ellie tells us we could stop it in five seconds using the Constitution as it's written. Quote, the way to fix the police was written into our Constitution before there were even police in need of fixing, unquote. And the Fourth Amendment does all the work. Here's what it says. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrant shall issue but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. Ellie says, quote, boom, make stopping people because they're black an unreasonable search, and make shooting people because they're black an unreasonable seizure. Make shall not be violated to include actually prosecuting cops and holding them personally accountable when they violate these principles, unquote. Ellie says to be to be sure it wouldn't happen immediately, right? That even if we did this, it wouldn't happen all at once. There would be outliers and in some situations where the suspect actually did have a gun and was a, actually a threat to police and the public, even though there'd still be reasonable disagreements about whether a cop tried to de-escalate before using a deadly force, and those cases would still be fought in courtrooms, and those cases may still fall in favor of the police. But actually applying the Fourth Amendment could make an officer think twice before killing black children, 
and racist cops would risk jail or poverty or, you know, being outcast by society. And that's why accountability matters so much. Quote, black lives can only matter if there's punishment for the people who take them. But we likely won't be applying the Fourth Amendment in this way because enough white people want the police to act this way. Too many white Americans want the police to be brutal. Ellie uses the example of the Central Park Karen, Amy Cooper. She went viral, as you remember, for getting into an argument with Chris Cooper, a birder. No relation, by the way, because Chris committed the horrible crime of asking her to leash her dog, which is actually a rule in Central Park. Chris Cooper is black. Amy Cooper is white. She called the cops, screaming that a black man was attacking her. Quote, in that moment, Amy Cooper was asking the cops to show up and enforce the supremacy of her whiteness. Ellie goes on to say, most white people he knows think they're better people than Amy Cooper and were disgusted by her actions, but most of them are lying, he says. Most of them are reacting negatively to Amy Cooper's application of her privilege, not the underlying concept upon which it rests. So what does he mean by that? He means that most white people want the cops to be there for them when they feel threatened by blackness. It's just that most white people use that power more judiciously than Amy Cooper did. And the ones that don't use the cops for that reason uh, are many of the same people who conceal carry firearms to handle the threat themselves in the name of quote unquote self-defense. And we went over that when we talked about the Second Amendment. Quote, I don't hold personal enmity toward the police any more than I'd hold a personal grudge against a pack of dogs sent to recapture me after I escaped from bondage. My issue is with their owner. My issue is with the white people who refuse to keep their goddamn cops on a leash. There are no good cops or bad cops. There are just a shitty white people. Unquote. That's the end of chapter seven. Next up is chapter eight. It's called It Says What It Says. <laughs> and it starts on page 76, and Ellie opens with his take on confessions. He says they should be unconstitutional and that the common practice of police and prosecutors sometimes coercively or even violently questioning criminal defendants until they blurt out a statement that can be used against them has to end. And again, there's already language in the Constitution that counters that practice. It's in the Fifth Amendment. Here's the relevant language. Quote, No person shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. The property part is interesting, and we'll get to that in another chapter. But Ellie says you don't have to tie yourself into logic knots to see how this text makes confessions unconstitutional. If anything, you have to bend over backwards to draw the opposite conclusion, that a confession is somehow obtained cleanly and without government coercion, given freely by well-meaning criminals who don't want to put the state through the trouble of finding them guilty, he says. In fact, the right against self-incrimination is in the Fifth Amendment to prevent the government from beating a confession out of you. Here, Ellie cites Judd Rubenfeld in the Yale Law Journal, quote, the core application understanding of this clause is well known. It prohibited the kind of interrogation practices found in certain 17th century English courts, such as the Star Chamber, where an individual was placed under oath, asked if he was guilty of a crime, and subject to severe punishment for refusing to answer. In 17th century and 18th century thought, this practice put guilty defendants in a tight spot. They faced three unattractive options, incriminate themselves and go to jail, lie and condemn themselves to hell as perjurers, or refuse to answer and go to jail anyway. Now, Ellie says some scholars may argue that the right against self-incrimination back then was about someone not getting repeatedly physically tortured until they confessed 
and our more modern understanding doesn't include nonviolent types of coercion. Quote, most scholars are probably right, and I, for real, don't give a shit. Unquote. <laughs> Ellie says he doesn't care what a collection of slavers thought were legitimate confessions. Quote, the people who wrote the Constitution wouldn't understand the word coercion if you wrote the definition on parchment and shoved it up their ass. Unquote. If you truly believe a person should not be compelled to incriminate himself, then there can be no good reason to try to trick him into it. Quote, this shouldn't be a game where the government tries to invent different ways to trick a person into ceding their constitutional rights. That goes against the spirit and the intent of the Constitution. And I love this next question. Ellie asks, why shouldn't coercion be defined by how susceptible a person is to it? Like, it's really subjective, right? As it stands, the strength of your individual Fifth Amendment protections depends on actually how much you know about the law, your level of education. The Fifth Amendment has become a test of how much education you have, and that's not how it's supposed to be. Quote, your constitutional rights aren't supposed to change depending on whether you know they exist. And we all know about the SCOTUS decision that tried to change that. Miranda v. Arizona, which is actually four cases consolidated into one. And in all four cases, the defendants confessed to crimes without knowing they didn't have to. Ernesto Miranda was suspected of raping a woman, and the cops found him at his girlfriend's house, questioned him and arrest him and put him in a lineup. Ellie has a sidebar here. He says police lineups also shouldn't exist because they force a victim to name someone responsible, despite the overwhelming evidence that eyewitness accounts are unreliable and juries put a lot of weight on positive IDs. So in Miranda's case, the victim couldn't positively identify him, but he was subject to hours of interrogation without a lawyer present nonetheless. Now, Ellie knows not to talk to police without a lawyer because he's a lawyer. But Miranda didn't know that, and the cops told him the victim did positively ID him. They lied to him, and he confessed. His lawyer appealed, and he became the lead litigant in the famous case. And SCOTUS ruled 5-4, with Justice Earl Warren writing an opinion requiring that all suspects be informed of their Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination and their Sixth Amendment right to an attorney, and he laid out the Miranda warnings that we're all familiar with, which we can all recite them by heart. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you can and say will be used against you in a court of law. You have the right to an attorney. If you can't afford an attorney, one will be appointed to you. I just did that right off the top of my head. I didn't put it in the script on purpose because we all know it by heart. It's part of our culture. But then Ellie says, as much as he loves Earl Warren and as much as he considers Miranda to be one of the most important decisions handed down by SCOTUS, he says this ruling is actually totally made up. Ellie says that, yes, right-wingers cry wolf a lot about liberal courts making up new laws, but as Justice Harlan wrote in his dissent, that Warren made up a requirement from whole cloth, and Ellie points out that if we're now in the business of informing people of their rights, I have some things I would like the cops to have to say before they search your home or vehicle or shoot you in the back for jaywalking or selling Lucy's. Ellie says modern conservatives only agree with Miranda because it's so popular. So popular, in fact, that a lot of people think it's actually in the Constitution. In a case that upheld Miranda, called Dickerson v. United States, even stated that Miranda shouldn't be overturned because it's part of our culture. Thomas and Scalia dissented because, of course. But Ellie's issue with Miranda isn't that it was made up. It's that it doesn't go far enough. Why not have one that stops cops from lying? And most conservatives are okay with Miranda because they've invented ways around it. Per use, right? It actually gives cops a pathway to violate rights in that Miranda warnings have become a tool to sanitize otherwise unconstitutional interrogational tactics. 
Like, sure, we coerced the guy into a confession, but hey, we read him his rights. So we're all good, hands clean. And while cops question suspects before they ask for a lawyer, the cops can lie to them about what they'll do to them if they request an attorney. They can lie to them about what their friends are saying in the next room or about evidence that doesn't exist. And that takes us right back to the education thing, being a litmus test. This is a litmus test for education instead of inalienable rights given to all, regardless of their knowledge. Now, some feel it's okay for cops to do whatever it takes to catch the bad guy. Trick him, whatever. Miranda probably raped someone, for example. And oftentimes the folks arguing that their rights have been violated aren't the easiest people to defend. Add that to the fact that most people believe confessions are true and that a truly innocent person will maintain their innocence right up to their death. But he says most people aren't black. Most people have never been a black black child. Most people cannot conceive of the intense and terrifying pressures that can be brought to bear upon unrepresented and unprotected black youths and how that can make a person willing to tell the white man whatever they want to hear. Enter the Central Park Five. Antron McRae, Kevin Richardson, Yusef Salam, Raymond Santana, and Corey Wise, all under 16 years old, all rounded up along with seven other black and brown boys after a string of crimes, including a rape, the rape of the Central Park jogger. Quote, under the lead of Linda Fairstein, who was head of the Manhattan DA's sex crimes unit, the boys were questioned for hours without an attorney or their parents present. Eventually, all five boys confessed to some aspect of the rape and were sent to prison. As we know, Donald Trump took out full-page ads in four New York newspapers calling for a reinstatement of the death penalty for these kids. And now we know they were innocent and their confessions were completely fabricated because in 2002, the actual rapist was caught, Reyes, and DNA evidence confirmed it, and he acted alone. His was the only DNA there. And now they're known as the exonerated five. So why did they confess? Why didn't they maintain their innocence up to death? Well, none of them actually confessed to the rape itself. They all invented stories to sound like witnesses, hoping that it would allow them to testify against who the real rapist was. The cops were lying to him in separate rooms. Your buddy said he did it and you helped. Right? But Fairstein turned it around on them and charged them all with some sort of gang rape without any evidence linking any of them to the crime. That allowed the actual rapist to stay out of jail and commit more rapes. Now, despite all that... Neither the DA nor any of the cops who coerced the false confessions have been charged with anything. Fairstein is an author now of crime novels and SVUs, Law and Order SVUs. Olivia Benson character is inspired by Fairstein. Her publisher did drop her after the Netflix series When They See Us came out, but nothing legally happened to her, nor will it. Miranda does nothing to protect black people from prosecutors like Fairstein. The way to stop this is to take confessions off the table and stop giving police a prize for tricking someone into confessing. Quote, if the Fifth Amendment recognizes the right against self-incrimination, then we should stop asking people to incriminate themselves. Why is that hard to understand? And that brings us to the end of Chapter 8. We will be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Please stay with us. Hey everybody, it's AG. Building and fixing your credit can really make your life easier. There was a time I didn't have good credit and it took a lot of work and a lot of paying down debt to get where I am today. But luckily, Credit Karma can make it easy for you. Uh, I've got a lot of credit card debt. It can be difficult to keep track of multiple monthly payment dates, high interest rates, and a great way to get rid of them is consolidate them with a personal loan from Credit Karma. 
That way you'll have just one due date a month and Credit Karma can help you find the best option. Comparing loan offers on Credit Karma is 100% free. It does not impact your credit score, so there's no risk here. And they use your credit data to find loan offers that are personalized to you and show you the chances of being approved so you can have a better idea of what loan amount you can get approved for without risk. Credit Karma. Apply with confidence today. If you're ready to apply, head to creditkarma.com slash loan offers to see personalized offers. That's creditkarma.com slash loan offers to find the loan for you. Again, creditkarma.com slash loan offers. And I want to talk about my new favorite place to buy jewelry, Ana Luisa. Ana Luisa has an incredible assortment of high quality, unique and affordable jewelry crafted with the planet in mind. I love sustainable brands. Their products are 100% water neutral and 100% carbon neutral from packing to products. Their entire selection is also reasonably priced with fair prices starting at $39, making it even easier for you to shop for yourself or find the perfect gift for that special someone you're trying to impress. I recently picked out a pair of earrings. They're drop, they're silver, they're beautiful, they're wonderful. They've been in my ears ever since I got them weeks ago. I have not taken them out. They're comfortable and they're awesome and sustainable. I love them. And with new jewelry collections released every Friday, there's always something new and exciting to add to your personal collection. I check it out every week. And when we have an Ana Luisa deal for you, go treat yourself and your loved ones and use my code MSWMEDIA to get 10% off. I absolutely recommend them. They are a great brand. They make beautiful, sustainable jewelry. So check it out at shop.analuisa.com slash MSWMedia and use code MSWMedia. Again, for 10% off, go to shop.analuisa.com slash MSWMedia and use code MSWMedia. That's shop.analuisa.com slash MSWMedia. And again, code MSWMedia at checkout. Everybody, welcome back. We are on Chapter 9 called The Taking of Black Land. It's on page 88 in the hardback edition of Allow Me to Retort, the New York Times bestseller by Ellie Mistal. And he opens chapter nine with some history, history that's probably not allowed to be taught in red state schools these days, the history of Seneca Village. In 1825, 1825, before the 14th and 15th Amendments were added to the Constitution, John and Elizabeth Whitehead sold off their farmland in Manhattan, in Manhattan, by dividing it into 200 lots. And they were some of the only people at the time that would sell land to black people and the Irish. They ended up selling half of their plots to black people, and that enclave was known as Seneca Village. Per the 1855 census, it had 264 residents, three churches, three cemeteries, and two schools. At the time, black people only got the right to vote if they owned land worth at least $250 and were a resident there for three years. White people had no such requirements, of course. But by 1857... Two years after that census data I just shared with you, the entire area had been destroyed, razed to the ground, and not by some natural disaster or not even a mob of angry whites that tend to show up and lynch black people who get ahead throughout history. Not even that. Seneca Village was destroyed to make way for the construction of Central Park. Quote, Seneca Village was located in what is now thought of as the west side of Central Park. Its boundaries extend from about 82nd Street to 89th Street between what is now Central Park West and where 7th Avenue would be if it extended straight through the park. It was a small and unnecessary part of the 775 acre of land set aside by legislature to create the park, unquote. But the government had the authority to buy or take the land under eminent domain in the Fifth Amendment. Quote, no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. Now, Elliot talks 
about what private property means here and how different legal systems treat the concept of private ownership differently. He offers the initial purchase of Manhattan Island by the Dutch in 1626 as an example, when the director of New Netherland, Peter Minuit, reported that he had purchased Manhattan for 60 guilders. That's about $24. And it would be too glib to say the indigenous people who sold him that land didn't understand private property. They, they did. They, but Ellie cites Arizona state law professor Robert Miller, who said that people likely did have a fully functional concept of property exclusivity, but we would probably call that a land lease and not a purchase. It was the colonizers who didn't understand or respect the deal. Now, eminent domain stems from the concept that private ownership ends where the state, uh, being able to take land to secure and defend territory, begins. The Dutch didn't really own Manhattan in 1626 because they couldn't defend Manhattan in 1626. And here's something I didn't know. It's called Wall Street because there actually used to be a defensive wall there that was built by the slaves the Dutch also brought over uh, to defend the settlement of New Amsterdam from attack by the indigenous Americans, the British, and pirates. Now, Ellie says here we can't tell, uh, that he can't tell us what just compensation means in the Fifth Amendment, nor can he tell us why eminent domain is tacked onto this amendment and not somewhere else in the Constitution. But he can tell us that Madison's initial proposed language was different. He said no person shall be obliged to relinquish his property where it may be necessary for public use without just compensation. It was Congress who changed it. And, of course, there's no record of debate. <laughs> That, which is weird, because there's usually record of debate. There's no Federalist paper that focuses on this. So we don't know. Quote, what I can tell you is that when white people want your shit, they will take it. And black people will rarely be justly compensated for the destruction of their wealth. Unquote. And libertarians have dumbed the concept down to a bumper sticker that reads, Takings. Uh, but they're really talking about when the government declares your private property a national historical site or prevents you from drilling oil or building a CVS. Quote, if you know anything about Republicans, you understand why the right-wingers get up for this fight. And you can see why libertarians are generally on the side of the government when it comes to eminent domain. We need things like wind turbines and historical sites much more than we need libertarians bitching and moaning about whether they received enough of a vig from the government for their troubles, unquote. He goes on to say, if this were a Republican book, he would go on for 30 minutes or so about a 2005 case called Kilo v. City of New London, where a white lady was forced to sell her pink house to a developer because the liberal wing of SCOTUS decided that taking private property and selling it to private developers was indeed a constitutional use of government's eminent domain. Quote, conservatives went nuts. They made a fucking movie about this lady and her stupid house. Parts of the house were moved and rededicated at a new site, and now it's some kind of monument to the fight against big government overreach. Unquote. <laughs> but, uh, and reluctantly, Ellie agrees with the Republicans on this issue. The Fed shouldn't be able to acquire land on the cheap because the business interest might have some kind of public purpose. Sports arenas are a good example. But Ellie's issue with Kilo is that it ignores entirely the black and brown communities that are being wiped out in the name of eminent domain. The first time Ellie learned about eminent domain was in college when he read Robert Caro's The Power Broker, Robert Moses and the Fall of New York. And Ellie sums up the seminal work like this. Quote, Robert Moses was a deeply racist man who built highways, bridges, parks, beaches, and even housing projects by bulldozing the hopes, dreams, and often literal homes of people in his way. His main tactic for acquiring land for his projects was identifying vulnerable minority or immigrant communities, declaring the homes and land as blighted, and then using the government's power of eminent domain to evict people from their homes over their objections and for a fraction of what their communities were actually worth. 
unquote. And this is where he talks about blighted and condemned being tricks used by the government to avoid paying just compensation. And it's what Moses did from the 30s to through the 60s in New York, a method a lot of cities would copy under the guise of something called urban renewal. And there are many urban renewal laws that allow states to seize land. And here's, here's an excerpt from New York State's urban renewal law. Listen to this. Quote, there exists in many municipalities within the state residential, non-residential, commercial, industrial, or vacant areas, and combinations thereof, which are slum or blighted, or which are becoming slum or blighted areas because of substandard, insanitary, deteriorated, or deteriorating conditions, factors, and characteristics, with or without tangible physical blight. Hmm. The existence, it goes on to say, of such areas constitutes a serious and growing menace, is injurious to the public safety, health, morals, and wealth morals and welfare, uh, contributes increasingly to the spread of crime, juvenile delinquency, and disease, necessitates excessive and disproportionate expenditures of public funds for all forms of public services, and constitutes a negative influence on adjacent properties, impairing their economic soundness and stability, thereby threatening the source of public revenues. Wow. So where's the just compensation when the government never pays what the value would be after it's developed? And back to Seneca Village, by the way, the first proposed site for Central Park was much smaller. It was along the East River. But two wealthy white landowners sued and won. Two white families, to be exact, who didn't even live on the property full time. So they went with the new plan to displace 200 black families instead. The residents of Seneca Village also went to court to object, but they lost. They were paid an average of $700 per lot. Today, the Time Warner Center sits right at the, south the southwestern entrance to the park, and the land is valued at about $1.5 billion. Ellie says New York City should go and find all the descendants of Seneca Village and pay them what their land is actually worth. I bet the government would be more cautious and fair when using its power of eminent domain if the compensation were ever just. And that brings us to Chapter 10. A jury of your white peers. I learned a lot in this chapter. Ellie opens by telling us that trial by jury is one of the oldest rights we have. Jury trials go back to the Romans, the ancient Athenians. And by the 1700s, William Blackstone, who Ellie refers to as the OG of legal pundits, wrote in his Commentaries on the Laws of England that the jury was the barrier between the rights of the people and the whims of the king. It was in the constitutions of all 13 colonies in America before the Revolution, and it's in our U.S. Constitution in the Sixth Amendment. But Ellie says it's hard to understand why people put so much faith in juries as a check on despotic uses of state powers. He says, quote, I cannot reliably get a random sampling of 12 people to read a whole article before calling me an asshole based on a headline. They don't even have to be experts, he says, in anything. Just 12 randos with nothing better to do. And he says this is the best system thousands of years of human civilization has been able to come up with. Of course, I just happen to be black, unquote. Black people do not have a right to an impartial jury. And for black people, the Sixth Amendment is a cruel joke. It's supposed to be a jury of one's peers, but it never is. He asks us to imagine a white banker accused of tax fraud or a white cop accused of murder sitting in front of an all-black jury. The truth is this country doesn't allow panels of all-black people to judge anything, dance contests, anything white people do. But black people are subject to the judgment of white people all the time. And it would be one thing if these all-white juries were naturally occurring, but they're actually manufactured by a criminal justice system that excludes black people from jury pools. 
Now, in 1880, SCOTUS decided a case called Strouder v. West Virginia, which held that laws making black people ineligible jurors were unconstitutional. But they ruled based on the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause and not the Sixth Amendment's promise of an impartial jury. But the tool prosecutors use to keep juries mostly white and mostly male is called preemptory challenge. During voir dire, potential jurors can be stricken, rejected for any reason or no reason. And when a lawyer rejects a juror without having to say why, it's called a preemptory challenge. SCOTUS kind of tried to address the ability of lawyers to strike black jurors for no reason under preemptory challenges back in 1965 in a case called Swain v. Alabama. But that focused on exclusion of black people from the jury pool, not the actual trial jury, also known as a pettit jury. Uh, You know, there's a grand jury and a pettit jury. Then in in 1986, there was a case called uh, Batson v. Kentucky. Batson, a black man from Louisville, was charged with burglary, and the evidence against him was scant. And Batson's trial resulted in a hung jury over one juror, a black juror, who refused to convict. The prosecutor wanted to retry the case and used peremptory strikes to oust all four of the black jurors in the jury pool. Batson wanted his lawyer to object to the strikes, and his lawyer was like, dude, there's nothing I can do. But he's like, object anyways, object anyhow. So his lawyer objected and was shot down, and Batson was convicted by an all-white jury. Now, he appealed, and a white public defender named David Nyhaus, uh, he wanted to know how it could possibly be constitutional to strike all the black jurors on pettit juries. And that's the story of how a public defender ended up arguing a seminal case in front of the Supreme Court. He argued the unconstitutionality based on the Sixth and Fourteenth Amendments and won. Seven to two ruling that said it was unconstitutional to use peremptory challenges to exclude jurors because they're black. And if a defendant objects to a prosecutor striking a black juror, the burden then shifts to the prosecution to provide a race-neutral reason for doing so. That sounds like a really big loophole. And it is. But we now call these hearings Batson Challenges. And after the 1994 case, J.E.B. v. Alabama, it also extended to women, striking women jurors. But Ellie points out that racist white people are not stupid and never take a constitutional setback as an opportunity to be less racist going forward. And white courts tend to accept any race-neutral excuse to strike black jurors, such as Biden like his body language or his employment status. Or there was even one time and and multiple times when they said, well, the juror just looks like the defendant. That's considered a race-neutral reason. And there are literally training videos on YouTube about how to get around bats and challenges. And Ellie calls it one of the most important civil rights victories and a complete fucking joke all at the same time. He says Thurgood Marshall saw all of this coming from a mile away. Marshall concurred in the judgment in Batson, but he wrote separately. And it's one of my favorite Marshall opinions, he says. Here it is, quote, I join Justice Powell's eloquent opinion for the court, which takes an historic step toward eliminating the shameful practice of racial discrimination in the selection of juries. The court's opinion cogently explains the pernicious nature of the racially discriminatory use of preemptory challenges and the repugnancy of such discrimination to the Equal Protection Clause. The court's opinion also ably demonstrates the inadequacy of any burden of proof for racially discriminatory use of preemptories that requests that justice sit supinely by and be flouted in case after case before a remedy is available. I nonetheless write separately to express my views. The decision today will not end the racial discrimination that preemptories inject into the jury selection process. That goal can only be accomplished by eliminating preemptory challenges, unquote. And Marshall was right. Ellie says the way to attack preemptory challenges, though, is through the Sixth Amendment. 
the right to an impartial jury and not the 14th Equal Protection Clause. But SCOTUS has said, quote, the Sixth Amendment requirement of a fair cross-section on the veneer is a means of ensuring not a representative jury, which the Constitution does not demand, but an impartial one, which it does. Of course, that was Scalia in a test case from the 90s called Holland v. Illinois designed to attack the constitutionality of the preemptory challenge. Scalia rejected it in a 5-4 opinion, and here's Marshall dissenting. Quote, the court decides today that a prosecutor's racially motivated exclusion of Afro-Americans from the Pettit jury does not violate the fair cross-section requirement of the Sixth Amendment. To reach that startling result, the majority misrepresents the values underlying the fair cross-section requirement, overstates the difficulties associated with the elimination of racial discrimination in jury selection, and ignores the clear import of well-grounded precedents. I dissent. Marshall retired a year and a half later, and the court has only become more conservative. The problem is that white people still think that all white juries can be impartial when sitting in judgment of black people. Quote, at least for now, we get to object. Maybe next century, white people will decide the Constitution requires them to listen to those objections. Unquote. And that brings us to the end of the chapter, chapter 10, and the end of the episode. I'll be back next week with chapters 11 and 12. Thank you very much, Ellie Mistal, for writing this amazing book. And thanks to our patrons and sponsors who make this show possible. Also out today is a new episode of Muller She Wrote. Check that out. And I'll be back tomorrow on The Daily Beans. Until then, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health. And vote blue over Q. I've been AG. And this is the MSW Book Club. The MSW Book Club is executive produced by Allison Gill in partnership with MSW Media and written by Allison Gill and Dana Goldberg. Sound design and engineering by Molly Hockey. Jesse Egan is our copywriter and our art and web designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios. The MSW Book Club is a proud member of MSW Media, a group of creator-owned podcasts focused on news, justice, and politics. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. 